0: from Secretary Esper's comments at the Aspen Institute yesterday. Where he talks about that we have to imbue this culture of innovation and risk-taking in DOD. And it's like, I don't know how many guys that sat in your shoes and said that for the last 30 fucking years. Tell me what it looks like when you do that. Culture. If you understand it, is culture is based on a common language. The culture of the Ranger Regiment is based on the Ranger Creed and is reinforced by everybody from the colonel who runs it down to the newest private
1: who has to stand up and... and BMNT, retired colonel, highly recognized innovation expert. Peter, thanks for making time for this.
0: Hey, thanks so much. appreciate it.
1: So I kind of want to con- continue the conversation we we're having before we started recording, but just to give people a bit of a background, can you tell them a little bit about what BMT, BMNT is and the book you're writing with Steve Blank and the Stanford stuff and the innovation stuff and, and uh, give people a little bit of a uh, background on you?
0: Uh, I mean... It- I guess the the best way to describe BMT is to describe how it came to be. And I liken it when I retired from the army, I was addicted to the concept of innovation and entrepreneurship. And I'd spent three years problems off the battlefield and looking for technologies and. And very rapidly answering some really hard problems. And and I really got caught up in that. So when I retired, I really wanted to do something that that had an impact in that space. And you know, having worked in it I realized that I couldn't do that working for somebody else. It really had to be, you know, whether it was a system or a methodology or a collection of companies look for tech, whatever it had to be, it had to be something that was built purposely to you know, drive solutions to the hard missions that people in the country were performing. So uh, the company literally started with four people standing on a driveway in Palo Alto, California, Uh, you know, the typical startup drill. Um, But it was interesting, you know, two of us were retired colonels. There was a a former Marine sergeant and another former Marine. And eventually we recruited a a woman who'd been an Air Force captain working, you know, really cool um, satellite programs. But the idea was that we were trying to close the gap between the problems that folks in the Department of Defense have and the technologies that were available in the Valley. And over time, we realized that it's not a technology problem, the gap. The, the gap is a sociology problem. And, and it really is a matter of not necessarily changing the way silicon valley behaves or getting them to appreciate dod more because quite frankly they do they got their issues but but they're still great americans and they still want to do the right thing for folks teaching folks in the dod how to better and not not that they're dumber or not looking at the right things but what they couldn't figure out was that Silicon Valley has a very specific business model, and that says take a great idea, take a couple of people, take a little bit of money, and in three years, turn that into a unicorn and sell it for a billion dollars, and take that money and start it over again, and, and DOG just couldn't seem to figure out how to work with that model, so the folks in the Pentagon were like, Silicon Valley's anti-military, anti-DOD, um, and quite frankly, Silicon Valley's anti anything that doesn't fit within its business model. And if you fit, it works. So BMT really started out as uh, a platform for teaching small subsets of people within DOD how to actually work in Silicon Valley. Now one of those things that we had to teach them was how to how to get their problems out of defense speak and into plain language, how to pair them with commercial problems that were similar and use that as a selling point to work with DOD. And and the idea of dual use investments and how to use the government's non-diluted capital actually to make a company more attractive for private investment which would eventually build a better product was just completely foreign to the way the defense system uh, was written. So that small team started collecting people. Eventually we bumped into Steve Blank and Steve and I kind of had a two-way epiphany of how to take my process of problem curation and getting these off the battlefield bolt out the lean methodology and eventually we created what is called the innovation pipeline. And you know, we have figured out what it takes to create the sources for innovation and discipline the process and the methodology that ensures you get throughput at speed through that pipeline. So BMT is a company now is both the, in innovation consultancy, we work with very large enterprise organizations to help them master this innovation pipeline. How do you establish it? How do you teach people to use it? How do you set up the system? And at the same time, because we're seeing the problems that come through, we're seeing the technologies We also fill service as an early stage tech accelerator. And it's like that space that's in between incubators and people with ideas. It's really taking a hard problem, taking potential solutions, a team with potential and turning them into an investable entity. It's ready to move on. So the short answer is, BMT is an innovation consultancy and an early stage tech accelerator that that builds lots of things for people and hands them off, and it it, it works.
1: And for people who don't know Steve Blank, a famous author, a lot of people know one of his students, Eric Ries, and the whole Lean Startup movement. I'm really excited. I think kind of in preparation for the book you guys are writing your people had reached out about having both of you on the show. And and so I was excited you guys were able to come on, you know, a little bit of a tangent. I'm, I'm interested in the, your answer to a question. I think about, you know, you, where you've been through, you know, you've been in third battalion for Rangers in your mind. Why do you think so many folks from the special operations community end up making great salespeople and great entrepreneurs? You know,
0: I will say it is a—it's a selection process. And first and foremost, you, know, you don't get into the ranger regiment without going through a, a serious, serious selection process. So it, it's not that—that that because you're in the ranger, you were successful. These are people who are going to be successful no matter what they do. They're mentally and physically just tuned to do that. And I, you know, having served in the Ranger Regiment for a while, I would tell you that in order to lead people like that, you have to be one of the strongest people on the face of the earth. You can imagine these people are all gifted. They're smart. They're strong. They're driven. And, and if you want to get out in and say, follow me, they expect you to be smarter, stronger, and more driven. Yes, that's a really tough environment to be in. They're put under intense pressure to perform. And it's one of the few places, you know, like a startup where people will say is, if you are not the best person for the job, it's not that you're not a great person because it's all about accomplish the mission. So you grow up in that environment, and quite frankly, that's what entrepreneurship is about. If, if you're not the best solution, you're not the best company, you're not the first person to leave, the venture capital folks who are putting money into companies will pluck the next person in line out and replace you in a heartbeat. Because your job is to be successful. It's all about the mission.
1: Yeah. What do you think on the sales side? You know, so many people are so scared of sales. What do you think it is about that that personality and that experience that helps people w- when it comes to, you know, the main thing all businesses need, which is the acquiring of new customers?
0: I, I think there's a natural inqu- the inquisitiveness. The best salespeople I have ever met, both in service and outside, have this unique ability to not just sell something, but they understand the problem their product is solving. So they're inquisitive, they're intuitive, they are compassionate. They're great at at getting people to talk to them and and they use what they learn to better craft the narrative that people want to snatch out of your hands. And I would tell you even it was like one of the shortcomings I think of the military with the way we grew up learning MDMP, which is the military decision making process. It is kind of a linear process that goes through steps. As a as a brigade commander of a very large formation in Iraq, I had you know 31 company commanders. You know these are 31 hundred man unit like commanders and. My biggest complaint is I couldn't get them to pitch me on anything. I I would either get, hey boss, here are the facts, what do you want me to do? Or I would get, here's what I wanna do with no facts. but the process of discovery and learning and using mvps that somebody who has to pitch something routinely learns is uh it's almost like second nature it it isn't something we teach our formations how to do enough and quite frankly that that version of problem solving was always been missing so i'll swing back around to your question about salespeople: is they they lack fear they're great at talking to people in order to learn information they're great at soft-pitching what I would call, you know, minimum viable products, which is conceptually this is how you do something until eventually they can actually nail what the, what the pain point is for a potential customer and they deliver the right product to them.
1: Well, I think that, like, you know, A, not having as much fear and, like, the courage to do things even when they are scared, you know? Think about what an advantage that is. As an entrepreneur, like, it's funny, I feel like, you know, a salesman salesman is a highly respected job in our society, almost like a garbage man, you know, like everybody's trying not to be a salesman. Right. And I think in my early twenties, I was just desperately trying to get away from sales until I like all of a sudden made like significantly more in a year than my dad had in a decade. And I was like, Oh, maybe being a salesman isn't so bad, you know? And you think about entrepreneurship and the need to be able to get those first customers, right? Like, Having the having the guts to go out and potentially be turned down is kind of a prerequisite, right?
0: You know, I I'm I'm amazed, and I love that you brought it up that way. You know, BMT. You know, we started out with four people. they are well over fifty in the company now. You know, we double in size every year in terms of revenue and and people every year, strictly with revenue. So there's no um, venture dollars in the company. We've always been responsive to. If we're going to grow the company, you have to earn it. I can't tell you how many people come to me, particularly leaving military service, say, I, I really love what you guys do, and I want to be involved, and I like that stuff, And but I don't want to have to sell things. And I immediately get offended and say, listen, I'm the CEO of this company. I'm the chief salesman. I, I've done, I have done every job in this company there is to, to include cleaning the bathroom floor before somebody comes to visit to pitch something at somebody else. There's not a job in a company that I haven't done. And in, in selling your yourself, your company, your concept is threaded in in the fiber of everything you do. So if you can't take pride in your own company, you're in a lot of work. <laughs> Well, I don't want to be the head BD guy, but, but I mean, there's a science to it that, that I'm not good at. But quite frankly, if you can't sell your own company, you, you have no business being an entrepreneur. None.
1: <laughs> you won't survive. I really like it when the touchy feely side comes out there. <laughs> so, so I, speaking of pitching, speaking of sales, I think about you know in my you know in my network, people know I have a lot of connections to, to your previous world and. And so I have entrepreneurs hitting me up on ideas of like, hey, I've got, you know, a low-vis option for modifying vehicles for following people. Or I've got a, a different technology so that, you know, we could be identified. I'm trying not to share these guys' <laughs> proprietary business ideas. But, no, you, know, I, okay. yeah. you know, one guy's got an idea for a new kind of thread that could go into clothing that could only be picked up by you know, FLIR or stuff like this. Right. Or, you know, these other guys in, in Manhattan, I met with my buddies working with them. They want to, they basically want to come out with a man sized drone to to kind of reduce helicopter accidents. They have no idea where to start. You know, venture capitalists, you, you look on the website, you find the information, you hop on LinkedIn, try to find a guy who knows a guy, right. Or, you know, even Boeing, you can start pestering the person at the front desk and, try and get a you know like there's all these tactics and hacks workarounds but it feels like a real really a black box for folks who maybe there's nobody in the military in their family they weren't they don't have personal connections to it they don't you know they're thinking like do i just try and cold call the pentagon like how do i how do i even get in touch how do i how do i bring ideas if somebody does have ideas and they would love to you know work on so, like the kind of courses you talk about hacking de- for defense that you guys have got at these universities all over yep. the place yep. now they have ideas they do want to bring it they've got that patriotic mission inside them can you give some tips on where people can start to to when they want to start p- pitching the DOD
0: right. yeah i think you know hacking for defense is you know an academic course that that we have originally piloted at Stanford University is now it's this year This academic year in 46 universities in the United States, seven more in the UK, and I think we'll launch a couple in Australia before too long. It has also spilled over to Homeland Security, the State Department, and a few other places. So essentially the idea of of taking problems from the military and people's ideas from the commercial world and and squishing them together in an academic setting creates the opportunity for the world's best market research to happen from both sides Uh, folks with the problems in the pentagon learn about the problems and what the problems really are based on the speed of change in tech and the people with ideas learn about the applicability of their technology to those problems But they also learn about the network of people inside DoD, from the users to the buyers to the contracting people to the money. They learn about that network that's relevant to that specific problem and that technology at that time. The world's best market research you could ever get. You can't pay for it. You have to get into the pit and you have to earn it just like everybody else. So hacking for defense is absolutely one of the best platforms to get inserted in there. We literally, and if nothing else, BM&T runs an accelerator called H4X Labs which was a spin out of hacking for defenses we found that were lots of people ideas and companies and and teams coming out of the universities who said okay i'm done with the academic course i know where do i go so you literally you come to hworks labs and you know, and somebody will point you in the right direction to at least get started and then come back and check on you so those are a couple of the options the defense innovation unit has really you know done a great job i think of opening the portal and allowing people to insert ideas and, and look for things the the National Security Innovation Network, ENSIN, which is the government program manager and sponsor for Hacking for Defense, runs a significant network of and folks at universities.
1: Can, can I pause just for a second? So I just Googled yeah. that, and it came up with DIU.mil, unit.mil right? Yep. And is there going to be contact information on this website? Is there – what do I do it, from it here? There will at least
0: – yeah, i haven't looked at it recently but it should give you a list of the things they're looking at right now and also a portal for just inserting ideas okay i'm going to do this i think i want to put the um uh,
1: you know the other one that i'm thinking about is i met the '06 who is who is helping some of the marketing for afworks the the air force them. version afwerx I'll, I'll tell you my little tip for anybody is. Find an 06, you know, in the army, that'd be a colonel. Find an 06 or above who really wants it and don't start with the contracting officers.
0: Oh. Yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's one of the, the lots of issues. One of the biggest challenges in, in building networks, unlike Silicon Valley, you don't know who the venture capital people are because they run funds for 10 years at a time. And the Roman it's been out for a long time. So you pretty much know who there is to know and talk to. In DOD, everybody moves every three years. So just because you knew the right 06 one year doesn't mean that 06 is going to be there the next year. So there's this constant froth of trying to keep up with um, who do I got to talk to? Where do I got to go? There's some other organizations out there that I think are really helpful. A uh, place called Eastern Foundry in D.C. I think has done some great work helping point people in the right direction. And I think, you know, there are a bunch of you know, it's the other accelerator consulting-like organizations out there that, that do a good job of data mining. We're at the point now where I think you have to be really specific about what it is your idea, what your tech can do, and and the faster you can relate that to a real problem inside the military, the faster you'll find the right people to talk to.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, to your point about it is a different game keeping a contract, right? Getting a contract can be hard enough, but then keeping it, right? Because, you know, that officer just got moved or so-and-so just took their next posting, mm-hmm. right? I like, like getting the second contract is much more, yeah. Right? Like, the biggest contract I ever sold in the military was with when I was at a consulting firm that I, you know, that used to work for me. I went to work for them and Arbinger Institute, they're great. And i landed like a $2.8 million contract with Army Medical Department, right? And luckily, yeah. we got enough. You know, because that's a three-star general. Got enough one-stars. Got enough 06s, 6s Got enough 03s, Got enough O-fours, to actually go implement it. And then we got you know a bunch of E-eights and E-nines that liked it. And and so over time, we actually did enough of it that people actually found it useful, and it it was a little more durable when things when things change, right?
0: Yep, absolutely.
1: But just just recently, well, I don't know. Two years ago, we had a contract with in one of the special operations communities, and. The individual that ran that whole program loved us. We did a lot with them on that program. And then the second when they got moved, you know, the new guy wasn't drinking the Kool-Aid and we haven't done anything with that training unit since, you know.
0: They're going to do it his way. I I think that's the, I would say, the fallacy and the problem with a lot of these R&D contracts. You know, the Air Force has done a great job of of being able to write small contracts faster. And that's created what I would call a bow wave of new companies and businesses that might be interested in working with with the government. The transition of those first contracts to the second one is not going so well. Yeah, shoot because it's the same problem. You're still trying to push more stuff through a very tiny hole and, and the rules keep changing inside there with, with who's who's interested, who's not. The best folks in the business at it look at it for the long term and they understand that I, I'm going to take this contract and it's going to get me to this point, but halfway through it, I'm going to start working on this contract. I'm going to take what I've learned here and I'm using that to inform another audience who's going to take me long term. Eventually they're working on that long term transition. They'd be there for a long time. I've gone through the same process with BMT of going, you know, we worked for, you know, the first year we were excited when he got a $60,000 contract. Yeah, and, and now it, you know, it's you know, we teamed with a group that won a large chunk of a $950 million contract. <laughs> But, but that didn't happen overnight. There was a lot of, how do we use these small contracts and events to learn about our tech, how it applies to the government's problem, who the people in the government are that we need to get to know, and how do we use that to get to the next thing that's going to keep us longer? And that's essentially why we built h 4 Labs, because we found that, that people need that constant low-level coaching and feedback with a long-term view it's not show up at a cohort for 30 days and we'll kick you out. It's like you come in and you're going to be here for the next six months to a year. You know, it's not every day, but we're going to keep helping you do um, a line problem tech network so that you make progress over time.
1: Well, it's interesting. You talk about that coaching and mentorship, you know, I think, and, and I obviously don't have nearly as much to do with our consulting firm. I have my, my employees that run that now because I'm so focused on our investment fund. Right my other partners but it never would have gotten to the place it's been with our you know DoD clients over the years without some of that mentoring I am um, I was able to get an O3 a woman who had been a, a Seahawk pilot you know the Navy version of Black Hawks for everyone else and she had gone to defense Language Institute for Farsi and got picked up by naval Special Warfare to go help on female engagement teams you know and had yep. spent some time on an O3 staff and and was getting out. And so I was able to talk her into coming to work for us. And, you know, in many ways she was my support staff, but she was also my mentor and she's absolutely great. But she, she was my support staff at my consult at the consulting firm, but she was also my mentor because, you know, another great place to find leads for military is like NDIA. What is that? National Defense Institute. What does Um, that stand for?
0: Industry Association. Industry Association. National Defense Industry Association. That was
1: a great place to go meet people because you can't, you can't look up, O is <laughs> and O is in the phone book, right? And but she she would just coach me and say, "Hey, listen, you do this, don't do that." Let's, you know, she knew the protocol, she knew the nav- she knew what to say and not to say. And you know, I think people should look at at bringing a veteran on the team and or getting a veteran advisor if this is something they're serious about. It was invaluable for me to to learn the culture, to learn the workplace, which made it so much easier for folks in that world to to let me in.
0: I, I think that's exactly right. I think that I've been blessed with the advisors, you know, my entire career, but and particularly when I got out you know, and started building a company is there were lots of people that said, okay, that's interesting, but you're a retired colonel in Silicon Valley. And uh, that's just, that's just not. <laughs> Tell me again what it is you're trying to do. Um, <laughs> but there were, there were some people out there who instantly got it. You know, Steve Blank, God love him. He and I met five or six years ago, you know, and have been close friends ever since. But he's one of the most brutal advisors you can ever ask for. And, and he pulls no punches when he looks at something and says, you know, that's an interesting concept. but Your idea sucks. And here's why I've been you know, good enough to find a variety of different advisors and mentors based on what it is we were trying to do at the time, whether I was scaling the company at a certain point or whether I was trying to handle HR issues or, or trying to handle defense issues. So you're very reliant on your network. And then the ability to find the right kind of advice in the right time and place. I think the one of the true signs of success is in several cases that people who were mentoring me eventually joined BMT. And I'm not talking people who are young guys. They're 56 year old. You know, just sold the company, made lots of money, and don't have to work for a living anymore. Decided they love the mission, they love the people, they love the concept, and they just want to come do great work. And quite frankly, you know, the leadership of BMT is like that now. If they're six of us that I would say, while well, I'm still a CEO. There are six of us running the company and we all have very diversified backgrounds and spent a lot of time mentoring one another over certain aspects of the company. And then on top of that, there are some great mentors out there.
1: Yeah. You know, I'd be interested in your advice because there's been people who've done things like you, but not exactly what you're doing. You know, you didn't just start another accounting firm. You know what I mean? Right. Like you guys are recombining things in new ways you know the nature of having these cross-disciplinary teams that you've built, right? You're interacting in new ways, and and to your point, people are saying, "Hold on, you're you know 32-year veteran ranger, retired colonel. What what are you doing in Silicon Valley, right? I like, mean, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So this is my question for you. Right now, at our investment fund at Greystoke Investments, we we're doing stuff that people haven't done before. So you know, in our in our industry, you don't advertise because for 80 years until four years ago, it was illegal to advertise private investments, right? So, New okay. Jobs Act regulations, we we can advertise it. Um, there's it's been very much an industry of like either you work through financial planners or you go have like one on ones. You know, the, the owners, the the fund managers go meet with somebody who can write a really big check, and they do the one on ones, and it's kind of a, a pretty known thing of how these funds get raised, right? And our thought is like, well, there's a lot of competition doing that. Why don't we try and find underserved markets? Why don't we go after the the entrepreneurs who maybe, like you said, just sold a company who don't buy their investments from from financial planners? Like, why don't we go after a different marketplace that the existing system doesn't, you know, doesn't really access, right? No. We want to do, you know, we're gonna have a, a nationwide sales force of licensed issuer reps, right? And in, in this industry, like You know, so many of my friends, they went and worked at Goldman Sachs after they got their degree at Harvard and like being a salesman, like talk about going down the, going down the social pecking order, right? Who would want to be associated with that? But for me, I'm thinking because none of my competition is willing to take the ego to have salespeople. So this is a chance for us to go access a whole part of the population that is not, you know, that's not having somebody come sit at their kitchen table with them. Right. And You you look at like Bloomberg or Red Bull, like my my friend who's out there near you, right? His wife used to be a model and then she became a Red Bull rep and she would go to the bars and try and get them to stock Red Bull back when Red Bull was becoming a thing, right? Well, they built this whole media network. She didn't have to tell anybody who Red Bull is because everybody saw the crazy dirt bike jump or the the whatever contest, right? She didn't have to explain who she was and what this company was about. Everybody heard about Red Bull because they got all this attention by you know, it wasn't just like a fluffy Facebook post. Like they became a media company, right? So yep. I'm trying to do these things where where we're recombining all this stuff in a way that's like, it's, you know, it's not the, it's not the way things are done in our space, right? So you've done some things that are not the way things are done. <laughs> I'm interested in any advice for you have for me about going about this.
0: I, I'm still doing things that, <laughs> I'll say I'm doing them incorrectly and I don't care. You know, one of the one of the things that I, I always tell new folks who join BMNT is to never confuse what we're doing with what we do. We're we're doing lots of things. We we try things, we learn things, we break things, we're constantly turning things up and and then you know in the long term we are interested in solving some of the really nasty hard problems in our country and whatever it takes to do that we're going to do whether it's it's build a prototype and demonstrate to people this is the relationship between a problem money and people and and here's a system you can use to fix it by the way let me open source that and just give it away and and by the way here's what it looks like when you teach it in an academic classroom and i'm going to give that away but but eventually you look behind that and it's okay how does this company actually make money and that's a Different animal than what. One of the things that Steve Blank taught me is that the more give away, the more you get, and and I call it the the idea of exponential learning is. Particularly in the consulting business and in the innovation business or whatever it is we're in, the more you do and the more that crosses your desk and the more hard lessons you get, the faster you start to learn. And, and that builds on itself to an exponential level where I don't care who the competitor is that shows up that says they're going to do what we're going to do. There are light years behind us in terms of if people can copy what we do today and it's looking at say by the time you figure out how to do that, scale it and sell it, we'll be doing something else. Because there's it's just so much you can do and learn and, and get to that you don't have to worry about I'm not I don't have a single product. The product that we deliver is a thought process and a speed of learning and yes, we spin off things but but at the end of the day we're never gonna stop learning. We're never gonna stop building, which which, quite frankly, makes us look like a startup forever. Which, in some cases, is a little exhausting, but in other cases, it actually works out pretty well. So I, I think the, the people are challenged by that, and not everybody is good at it. Not everybody is comfortable in that environment, and certainly the people who look at it from a long-standing entrenched industry don't get it. They know they want some of it, but that they, they don't know how to how do I use you or how do I bring you to my organization? It's just it's it's really hard.
1: Yeah, you know, as you're saying that, what's running through my head is. I feel like half the solution is I just need to accept that the old guard isn't going to accept me. I'm not going to like I'm not playing their game, I'm not waiting in line, I'm not climbing the ladder I'm supposed to climb, right? And so expecting them to like it is probably a pretty low probability thing, and I probably need to like just be okay with being an outsider in certain certain circles of the investment world, right? And then my next question is for the other folks of how to help them not be scared by us recombining these patterns that have worked in other industries, recombining them here and have them not be scared of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I give you, the, you know, kind of anecdotally, I, I realized that was an issue when uh, the CEO of a large consulting firm showed up in my small office several years ago. And we had a great conversation, and, and he got ready to leave. He said, you know, Pete, love what you guys are doing. Said, quite frankly, I came here to see if you guys were competition or were potential you know, partners down the road. And I had to laugh. And I looked at him and I said, you know, what What did you guys make last year? And he goes, well, said, you know, a billion and a half dollars another day. And I said, and I just laughed and shook my head. I said, are you that worried about the environment? And he said, listen, here's the issue in the defense consulting world. The biggest fear is that DOD is going to ask one of us to do something that we can't do. And we're going to lose a billion dollars contract in three years. I said, so he goes, and, and his point to me was, don't underestimate yourself because you're doing things we can't do and we'll never be able to do what you're doing. And so despite the fact that we're huge and whatever else, you still strike fear into the hearts of some of these people because if you do that for somebody else and not for us it's like the fuel of being left off that it, this is really uncomfortable place to be in i think i like you i accepted that that i'm never going to be part of the the upper crust or whatever else and quite frankly i don't want to be i like the freedom that i have from not having to be responsive to shareholders or worried about a quarterly um report i like the freedom from growing a company and being able to determine where to you know we've never taken a profit although we're profitable every year we like the decision of turning all of our profits back into the company and learning new things and getting cool people and doing things i enjoy a better quality of life i think because of that than a lot of those other folks do it's just my take
1: yeah yeah it's interesting the internal battles and decisions we have to make in addition to all the external things we have to do at work right yeah
0: it gets worse every year (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, without without sharing any secrets, what's what's the new book about? What's this new project you and Steve are doing? Is there anything on that you are sharing?
0: Yeah, I mean, here's here's the premise. You know, we started hacking for defense, and you know we've learned a lot about problems in the national security arena. And then we learned that large organizations have the same same issue with not understanding how to implement innovation or get something from it. Quite frankly, there's a state of innovation exhaustion that that people have met. They're so sick of the word and they're so sick of all these little things that people are doing that that have value but the value is never realized because they're not combined correctly yeah and lots of people talk about changing culture in fact i was reading an excerpt from secretary esper's comments at the aspen institute yesterday where he talks to that we have to imbue this culture of innovation and risk-taking in dod and it's like i don't know how many guys have sat in your shoes and said that for the last 30 fucking years Tell me what it looks like when you do that. Culture, if you understand it, is culture is based on a common language. The culture of the range regiment is based on the range of creed and is reinforced by everybody from the colonel who runs it down to the newest private who has to stand up and, and you know, starts with the first stand of the range of creed. It is a culture based on a language and people understand what that language means because it's reinforced in their behavior patterns every day. When it comes to innovation, there's no there is no culture well there is in silicon valley austin and new york city and boston those places on a commercial side and that culture starts with the common language people learn while they're getting an mba or they're finishing a phd or that culture is based on a common language there is a an unwritten doctrine i guess there is a doctrine it's called the lean startup it's called you know investment theory it's it's there is a doctrine for how commercial innovation is done. Not so in DOD. There's a military doctrine. And, and while it's, the reason I, I harp on doctrine is, doctrine drives structure. Structure drives the deployment of resources and people's jobs and the connections. So. If you don't solve this culture problem by creating a common language for innovation that relates innovation to war fighting, to structure and other things, it's never gonna be funded properly. People are never gonna be taught and it's just, it, you're never going to solve this, this problem that's going on for 30 years. And here's the best example. It's just in good spots. It's Stanford University, in any given quarter, there are 134 courses in entrepreneurship that you could take across the entire campus. 134 in professional military education, professional military and civilian education in the United States government. There are none. There's no place a sergeant or a lieutenant or anybody else goes as part of their career progression where they learn about entrepreneurship and they learn how entrepreneurship applies to where they learn the doctrine and the language for it inside the government. So there are lots of these really frustrated people who are learning and trying to apply, but it's still not part of the system. The the one bright spot out there is literally was announced today in the UK, the UK Ministry of Defense at their Armed Forces Staff College has just created a master's degree in defense innovation. So King's College, which runs that program, has a master's degree in defense innovation. The capstone course of that, hacking for the Ministry of Defense, a practical application of problem solving against current problems that military people learn just like entrepreneurs anywhere else. So, so there's progress there, but, but at the end of the day, the book that Steve and I are writing is really about the innovation doctrine. What what are the challenges that we face today with you know great power competition versus the speed at which technology is um, adopted and adapted and employed in a military setting versus the conflict that faces when it runs into an antiquated requirements generation, concept development, and acquisition system that was based on things in the 70s and 80s so the book is really about innovation doctrine. how do we create a system for innovation that works at yeah. the speed that, that the world is turning now
1: well excited to see that come out what what kind of an estimate do you think when you guys are looking for a published date and, you know
0: the draft is due to uh, wiley is the publisher so the uh, draft is due in march i think that probably this time next year uh, the book will be out okay We'll to watch and, if, a... and if anybody from Wiley's listening, Steve and I are working. <laughs> you know, the the COVID lockdown kind of crushed us. You know, we were on a timeline and just you know just to get hard. So we're we're behind and catching up.
1: So my next question here, maybe it's a good place for us to wind down. We you know we've had a number of folks on the show from the special operations community over the years. I'd be interested in any stories of. You know, the show is called Leadership and Innovation. Thinking about leadership, thinking about leaders that had a big effect on you. Is there anybody, you know, from Ranger Battalion or elsewhere that had a really big influence on you as a leader?
0: All, all kinds of them. So I would tell you, I've had, you know, in a 32-year career, I've had some of the best bosses in the world, and I've had some of the absolute worst. I learned something from all of them, and that's the key part is I learned as much from the crappy bosses as I did from the good ones. From the bad ones, I learned a really great examples of how not to do things and the impact of being a jackass as a leader. From the good ones, I learned how not to be a bad leader, but, but really is is how to do things.
1: Is there, Can you tell a story yeah. about one of them?
0: Yeah, there's so many. And I'll give you an example. Stan McChrystal, who I didn't directly work for until really late in my career, but my first introduction to uh, back then, Colonel McChrystal, who was the second Ranger Battalion commander. Um, in the middle of a joint readiness exercise, you know, we had been all over the country. Third battalion and second battalion were both dumped into the joint readiness training center for, you know, big tactical operations something. And, and I essentially was the de facto LNO to SEAL Team 6 and to a bunch of other JSOC folks. And when I got the JRTC, it's like, you're done doing all that stuff. Now we need to go hook up a second battalion and make sure they got something. So
1: And, and for folks who don't know what short- an LNO is.
0: Uh, liaison officer. I, I, you know, I carry the baggage or explain things for other people. Sometimes it's whipping boy because you show up with bad news and get thumped for it. Um, and that's kind of what I expected this one night. I, I was told to go find um, Second Battalion and deliver a message to Colonel Crystal about something, and and it was not a good something, but. It, it's pitch black and I'm stumbling around and eventually I get to where they are and I reach down and grab a tent flap and everything's pitch black out and I open the tent flap and step inside thinking I'll find somebody else Chrome and, Crystal and I literally I run right smack into the back of his chair and he's <laughs> sitting around a big table in the middle of a briefing with all of his commanders and other people <laughs> just, Literally, you could hear a pin drop in the place <laughs> yeah, and all I could think of is, and, and you'll see somebody coming out of, out of left field about to clean your clock for interrupting the meeting and running into the colonel. And, you know, McChrystal was great. He looked at me and he said, oh, what do you need? And, and we had this great conversation and, and it was great. And I went outside and it's like, oh my God, Whew, I survived that one. I didn't see Colonel McChrystal again until I was an 06 at ref. So it was probably 10 years. It was at least 10 years. And I was at a base shopping center in Fort Myer, and he was a two-star general coming to work in a Pentagon. And we're both in civilian clothes, and he grabs me and says, I know you. Give me a minute. I'll remember your name. And and, and starts with hi, I'm Stan McChrystal. I don't remember who you are, but not I'm General McChrystal, not. But it was a very personal conversation between the two of us. And and then I had to tell him, you know, I do work for you in a Pentagon. You just don't know it yet, but— you get down there, I, I will tell you, particularly when the special operations community, despite the fact that the mission is always first, the discipline is exceptionally high, the people are calm. They're the calmest quietest, most unassuming leaders you could ever run across. In fact, if you met on the street, you would not know that that's what they do for a living. Um, because there's such an air of confidence in themselves and what they do and the people around them, they don't need to have this um, onerous air of, I'm the leader. And I tell my kids the same thing, and I tell the people in my company today the same thing. Is if, if I have to explain to you that I'm the boss and need to reinforce that, I'm not. You'll figure it out over time that I am. And, and that's kind of the attitude that they have, is they know that the boss, they know that their decisions are the last decision made. They know that they're responsible for accepting risk, Um, and they don't need to reinforce that with anybody, which allows them to be quite personal with people and to actually guide and steer and mentor and provide, as I say, the absolute minimal amount of force necessary to keep things between the rails while also taking advantage of the entrepreneurial mission-driven spirit of the people who work for them. And, And that was the impact that I took back from it.
1: That's great. Well, besides people going to bmnt.com to check you guys out or connect with you on social media, uh, LinkedIn or things like that, is there anything you want to leave us with? It could be about what we've covered or or about something different, whatever is on your mind. Yeah,
0: absolutely. The other site that that people ought to go to is if you go to h4d.us. That's the Hacking for Defense site. And and quite frankly, we are, if you're somebody in the defense or government world, um, we are just spinning up the source of problems for the next academic year. We've got 46 phenomenal universities full of really bright, energetic young men and women who want to take on your problems, but we want your problems. So H4D.us, there's a problem portal there. We'll run a bunch of virtual sessions for folks to teach them how to get their problems into the system but we're really looking for some of that hard stuff to do. And it doesn't matter what the tech is or whether it's policy or or something else. They're all great problems. We just got to get them out into the light of day.
1: Love it. Well, I appreciate you doing this. This is a really fun conversation. No, I appreciate
0: it. Uh, I actually learn as much listening to you as I do to myself some days.
1: (laughs) Thanks everybody for tuning in and make sure to be on the watch for, for Pete's new book this time next year. Thanks so much.